This morning's scripture reading comes to us from the book of Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. (laughs) For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer so many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did it to him, whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. We are in the midst of a series looking at Mark in reverse. Now, the book of Mark is broken into two different sections. Chapter 1 through 8 basically is telling us who Jesus is, and it's culminating with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, and Jim's going to be preaching on that text um, next week. The second section of Mark is chapters 9 through 16, and those chapters tell us what Jesus has come to do. Now, this morning, we are ending the section on what Jesus has come to do. In our text this morning, it contains one of the most amazing and complex scenes in Mark's gospel, the transfiguration of Jesus. This scene of exaltation is sandwiched between chapter 8, verses 31, where Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected, and chapter 9, verse 12, where it says Jesus is going to suffer and face contempt. Jesus' exaltation is sandwiched between two passages of suffering. This is the insanity of God. The sheer exaltation admits the steep descent. So this morning, I want us to talk about two things. First, I want us to look at Jesus' exaltation. And then secondly, I want to look at the steep descent. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful this morning for this ancient text, your word. And you promise that your word will not go out and come back void. And so, Holy Spirit, 
We pray you take away the distractions around us. Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear. And Lord, most importantly, we pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds so that we might be more like you, Jesus, glorifying you in everything we do and everything we say. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I encourage you to open your bulletins or your Bibles. And the first thing that I want us to look at is the exaltation. Now in chapter 8, Jesus has just announced his battle plan to end the war. And the disciples, they're shocked and appalled. And Peter, he even goes as far as to rebuke Jesus. Then Mark tells us about six days after Jesus says to Peter, and James and John, we're going to go on a hike. Now, about 10 years ago, one of our more adventurous members decided that they were going to take the guys on a hike up Mount Mitchell. And if you know, Mount Mitchell's one of the highest peaks, is the highest peak in North Carolina. So 10 to 15 of our guys gathered at the base of the mountain, and this adventurous guy that was leading said it was just going to mild, moderate hike. Well, as they began to hike up, they encountered a rattlesnake on the trail. They actually had to climb in different parts to actually get up the trail. And then one of the guys actually damaged his knee so bad that they had to carry him halfway up the mountain. And when they got to the top, one of the guys told me afterwards, because I didn't go, and he, uh, he said, uh, you know, Todd... I'm pretty strong, I'm pretty athletic, but that was the most miserable experience of my entire life. So much so, when they pitched the tent, he went into his tent, he fell asleep, he slept through dinner, and didn't wake up till the next morning when they began their descent. It was a very, very difficult hike. Now, Mount Mitchell is 6,600 feet. Mount Hermon This hike that Jesus is inviting Peter, James, and John on was 9,200 feet. So you can imagine what was going on in the disciples' minds. They were used to being on flat ground at the beach. And they're thinking, we're going to have to hike up this huge mountain. They were probably filled with fear and anxiety and excitement and wondering, what in the world? Why is Jesus taking us up this mountain? Well, we see the answer as we look at verse 3. When they reached the summit, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. His clothes were radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I love how Mark says that, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus was transfigured. The veil revealing his glory was taken down just for a moment, and they were able to see his glory. He is the source of the glory. And as Jesus stands there with his glory revealed, Mark tells us in verse 4, that suddenly two visitors appeared. In verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, one of the visitors was Elijah, the great prophet, who boldly proclaimed the good news of Christ. 
The other is Moses, who centuries earlier had stood atop another mountain, Mount Sinai. And though he was not able to see the glory of God, but even getting near, his face shone with reflected glory of God for a number of days. Moses, the one who confronted Pharaoh and had led the Israelites out of captivity, the one who God used to deliver the law. Both great men of faith, Elijah the prophet, Moses the lawgiver. And we have in both of them the Old Testament, both the law and the prophecy. Both liberators of God's people, both appeared with Jesus in his radiant glory. And they stood together and they talked to one another. Now we aren't told what they're discussing as they stood and talked with one another But I believe Mark, he adds this, that they're having this conversation to remind us that though Jesus is exalted, though Jesus is glorified, Jesus still is very much fully God and fully human. Now imagine you're standing there seeing Jesus' face streaming like a noonday tropical sun. And imagine six days earlier you had rebuked him. Peter, full of fear, yet knowing the only response to Jesus' exaltation is worship, says to Jesus in verses 5 and 6, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now we read that and think, what in the world? What is Peter thinking in this moment of exaltation, asking if he can make three tents? Well, the word tent here in the Greek is tabernacle. And when God's glory came down on Mount Sinai, the Israelites, they built a tabernacle because they understood that an imperfect man could not be in the presence of a holy, exalted God. So the Israelites, they needed priests with sacrifices to mediate between God and man so that they might worship him. Tim Keller says, Peter here is saying to Jesus, we need something to protect us. We need a tabernacle. We need to set up sacrifices and things to protect us from the presence of God so that we might worship. But before Peter could even begin To set up tents, the text tells us there's a third visitor on the top of Mount Hermon. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the Shekinah glory of God. The same cloud that descended on Mount Sinai now descends on Mount Hermon. God the Father comes down and visits with them. And what does God the Father say to Jesus? He says the exact same words that he said when he commissioned Jesus at his baptism. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
The father stamps Jesus with his approval. The father says to Jesus, no matter what is about to transpire, no matter how much you suffer, I love you. You belong to me. I approve of everything that you are doing, and I am with you. And just as the father offered his approval to Jesus on Mount Hermon, the father offers his approval of us as we live and work here in the triad. I love my dad. He was a great father. And over the last 15 years, he's done a lot of great internal work on his heart. But growing up as a kid, my, bro- my, my father had a shame-based personality because of his granddaddy, or my granddaddy, his father. And because of that, he could be really critical to me and my two brothers. And so, my other brothers dealt with the criticism differently than I, what I did is I internalized my father's voice inside. And so I had this internal critic that constantly was running in my heart and mind. And so if teachers or coaches criticized me, what I would do is I would amplify that criticism. That voice inside of me would make it louder and louder. And if there was silence from teachers and coaches and mentors what would happen is the internal critic would fill in that silence and tell me, Todd, you're inadequate. You're not very smart. You don't have what it takes. You talk too much. And those messages would just stay with me all the time. Because we live in a fallen world, my guess is many of you have your own internal critics as well. Not to mention Satan, the father of lies, who's constantly whispering words of discouragement in our ears. But just as the father spoke words of love and affirmation to his son on Mount Hermon to spur him on, the father speaks words of love and blessing over me and over you. He says, Todd, you're my beloved son. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I have a plan for you, a future for you. He says to every one of you, you are his beloved son and daughters. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. Paul says to Timothy, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. The God of the universe loves you. Do you hear him whispering in your ear this morning? Do you hear him saying to you, you are my beloved. You are adequate. You are cared for. You are special. You have been uniquely crafted. The Father He thought about you before you even were born. And all your days were numbered. You were wonderfully and fearfully made. You belong to him no matter what the world, Satan, or your inner critic says to you. 
The Father says to Jesus on Mount Hermon and to us sitting here this morning, we are God's beloved. Well, then as we continue on in our text, we see in verse 8 that we have another curious happening. Mark says, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. What in the world is happening here? What is the significance of what's happening here? The Shekinah glory has encompassed not only Jesus, but Peter, James, and John. And Peter, he wanted to build a tabernacle to protect himself from sure destruction in light of God's holiness so that he might worship God on the mountain. But listen to this. It's very important to Jesus' mission. On Mount Hermon, Jesus says a man-made tabernacle is no longer needed. Peter, James, and John were able to stand in the presence of the Shekinah glory and the exalted sun, and they did not die. They are able to stand in the presence of God and worship him freely. How is this possible? Keller says, Jesus is not just the God on the other side of the gap. Jesus is the bridge over the gap. Jesus is the temple and tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he is the sacrifice and priest that has ended all sacrifices and priests. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he atones for our sin and his righteousness is imputed to us. He tears the veil in two that existed from the fall in the Garden of Eden, so that all who profess faith in him, we can be restored in relationship with God and do what we were created to do, and that is to worship and glorify him. On Mount Hermon, we see a foretaste of what is to come when Christ is raised from the dead and eternally exalted. We see God the Father, God the Son, and his disciples, Peter, James, and John, freely worshiping the creator of the universe. It's an astonishingly beautiful, mind-blowing, and utterly hopeful scene. A glimpse of Eden being restored. Shalom breaking forth into our world. Man able to stand in the presence of God and not only live, but worship him. So the first thing we see in our text this morning, we see the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The second thing we see is the steep descent. Now we've all been on retreats, whether it's to the beach or Windy Gap or Rockbridge or J.H. Ranch. And at those retreats, we taste the goodness of God. We worship with God's people. We fellowship with God's people. We laugh. We have fun. It's a mountaintop experience. But like Jesus and the disciples, we all have to make the descent, the long trek back down the mountain. In verse 9, Jesus and his three disciples began making the trek down the mountain. And as they walked along with Jesus, Jesus charged them to tell no one 
what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. Now, why does Jesus tell them not to tell anyone about this incredible experience on top of this mountain? Well, the short answer is until the resurrection came, no one would believe it. People would have either thought they were crazy or they would have tried to make Jesus into their own image, the image of the Messiah that they thought he should be. And then in verse 10, Mark tells us, so they kept the matter to themselves. Yet they were questioning what this rising from the death might mean. So as they continued down the mountain, they were struggling so much with what they had just experienced and Jesus' mention of his own death and resurrection that they decided to ask him about it in a more circuitous way. The disciples, being well-versed in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, they were very familiar with Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God said in Malachi that he would send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so what do the disciples do? They ask in verse 11, why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come? And then look in verse 12 through 13. Jesus answers them. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What is Jesus saying to the disciples here? This is confusing to our Western ears. Jesus says, Malachi's prophecy, it's been fulfilled. Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as is written of him. But but wait, we just saw Elijah up on top of Mount Hermon. What in the world is Jesus saying? In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus says of John the Baptist, He is Elijah, who is to come. Now, is Jesus saying that John the Baptist and Elijah are the same person? No. For John the Baptist himself, when he was asked if he was Elijah, he said no. So, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is a new Elijah. And like the prophets of old, John the Baptist came to make a way for the Messiah. And like the prophets of old, he suffered and died. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm the new Moses. I'm not just going to lead people out of political bondage to an evil Roman empire. I'm going to liberate people from their sin. But in order to bring shalom, and this is the key point to understanding this text, in order to bring shalom, the way of Christ and the way of his kingdom, Jesus says, I too must suffer and die, and on the third day be rose from the dead. I must descend. 
Suffering is not the mark of divine hatred. It's a a mark of divine love. The prophet Elijah, he preached God's word and he called others to repent. He confronted Ahab and Jezebel about their Baal worship. And what did they do? They, They sent him out of town running as fast as he could. Elijah was persecuted for the sake of the gospel. He suffered greatly, not because God hated him, rather because suffering is the way to greatness. It is the way to exaltation. Moses was left for dead in the Nile River. He was rescued and raised among Pharaoh's household. But then God called him to deliver the Israelites. And then he and the Israelites, they had to flee through the Red Sea. He suffered in the desert, not because God hated him, rather because suffering is the way to greatness. It is the way to exaltation. Jesus' passion is what brings about redemption. The road to healing and exaltation for Jesus and for us comes through Calvary. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12 too, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus says, if we wish to follow him, we too must take up our cross. If anyone wants to find his life, he must lose it. Jesus says, in this world, this side of heaven, we will face tribulations. And as the world hated him, the world is going to hate every one of you who profess faith in Jesus. Do you hear me? The world is going to hate every one of you and me who professes faith in Jesus. The truth is, if you stand for Christ and his truth, you will experience the world's contempt. But take heart, because as Paul says in Philippians, you're participating in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You're walking in the footsteps of Elijah and Moses and Peter and James and John, Dinah, Ruth, Naomi, Mary Magdalene, Judea, Lydia, Syntyche, and so many more. And your reward, it won't be given to you here on earth. But when we get to heaven, Christ will offer us rewards for our perseverance through suffering. The way of Christ is the way of suffering and then hope. The question for us this morning, are we living our lives? Are you living your lives in such a way that at times you are facing Others contempt for you. Now, I'm not saying go out and be obnoxious. Go out and take your Bible and beat the crap out of someone. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that we're called to be winsome. We're called to be gentle. We're called to be compassionate. But we're called to preach the good news. We're called to stand up for God's truth. And if we do, we will suffer. We will face tribulations. We'll become more and more the minority. Now, what in the world 
is going to enable us to persevere through such tribulations? What's going to enable you and I to persevere to the end? To hold on to our faith? Well, the answer is on Mount Hermon. First, we need to internalize the Father's voice that we are the beloved. We need to know that we are the beloved, that he has stamped his approval upon you, that he loves you, that he's with you, that you belong to him. When you know that, even though you might face suffering and tribulation, you can take one step in front of the other. You can keep walking because you belong to him. He loves you. It was the Father's love that enabled Jesus to go to the cross. It is the Father's love that enables us to take up our cross. But that's not the only thing on Mount Hermon that enables us to persevere. We can also persevere if we, like Peter, James, and John, worship Jesus on the mountain. It's Black History Month, and, and we celebrate our, our black brothers and sisters who endured such horrific injustices. And we also learn from their example. Because how were our black brothers and, Abel's, and, and black brothers and sisters able to persevere such incredible persecution? They worshiped God. They wrote and they sang beautiful Negro spirituals. It's been written to Martin Luther King Jr. that in the evenings when he was surrounded by so much tribulation and contempt, he couldn't sleep. And so he would pick up his phone and he would call his worship leader and he would say, sing to me the great hymns so that I might worship. Worship is what will enable us to persevere. And the beautiful thing is that we don't have to climb Mount Hermon anymore. We know the end of the story. The resurrection has come. The veil has been torn. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We, as a local community, can come together corporately and worship. Every Sunday, we should be running in here to worship. Because it's been so hard as we preach the truth out there and face contempt and scorn and loneliness. But when we come in here and we lift up our voices and we see Jesus and we hear from his word, we can continue to persevere in our faith because we know that God is for us, not against us. And that one day he's going to come back And he's going to undo every injustice. He's going to make all things right. And we're going to gather together and we're going to worship him forever and ever and ever. What a glorious day. But until then, we bend our ear to him. We hear him whisper, you are my beloved. You belong to me. And then we turn our hearts together to worship him. In just a moment, we're going to come to this table. It's a table of humiliation, dissent, 
and the table of exaltation. For at this table, we celebrate Christ's death and his resurrection. We worship him. We are united to him in a way that is so special as the Holy Spirit descends as we partake of the bread and the cup. But before we come to this table, Paul says that we need to search our own hearts. And maybe this morning, you need to just hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I love you. I'm proud of you. Maybe you need to confess something where you haven't aligned your life with his truth this week. Maybe you just need to reflect and just worship in your own heart the exalted Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. So the band is going to come, and as they come, I encourage you just to close your eyes and let the Spirit speak. Amen.